Well, welcome to the second session of the Rooted course. I sincerely hope you got something out of last week's session as we looked at how does one become a Christian and what is involved in the process of becoming a Christian. We looked at Acts chapter 9 in the New Testament and we looked at Saul's conversion, how Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul. And we did a case study, as it were, of his conversion. And we drew out a number of, of points. And I made the case that becoming a Christian involves four things. To be properly birthed into the kingdom of God. There's, there's believing the gospel, God's announcement. There's repenting, which shows that our believing is real. There's being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's being baptized in water. And those are the four things together that are part of the conversion experience. And I pointed out that sometimes in life, people first believe and only years later actually repent. Sometimes people believe and repent, but aren't filled with the Spirit. And sometimes people are not baptized in water. But really, if you study the Scriptures and you look at what the Bible teaches, you will see that in the New Testament, believing, repenting, being filled with the Spirit and being baptized in water, all of these things happened part and parcel of the conversion experience. So today we're going to pick up in John chapter 3. Please will you uh, either open your Bible to John chapter 3. You may want to just pause the video to get that sorted out. Or look at the notes that are uh, posted with this video. You may want to open a new tab in your browser so that you can have the rooted notes there as I speak so that you can read the scriptures for yourself as I read them. So in John chapter 3 in the Gospel of John we have the account of Nicodemus, another Pharisee, coming to Jesus and having a conversation with him. So we're going to read this passage. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher that has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So that's quite a, an affirmation from someone who was not a Christian. This is a Jewish Pharisee, a great leader and teacher in Judaism. And he recognizes there's something special about Jesus. He recognizes that God is with Jesus. So he comes to Jesus by night. He doesn't want to be seen, but he's hungry to know what it is about Jesus that makes him so special. In verse 3, Jesus comes out with it straight away and he says this, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and 
the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So if we were sitting in a room together, we would discuss this passage that I've read, most of John chapter 3, in great detail. And I would make some of these observations. Firstly, who is Nicodemus referred to in verse 1? And all we need to know is that he is a great religious teacher. He's referred to as Israel's teacher. In other words, he's a man with a, with a reputation. He's a Pharisee. He's got everything to lose by coming to Jesus. I pointed out already, he came to Jesus at night. We see that in verse 2. Perhaps because he was super busy, but also because maybe he didn't want to be seen. He's drawn to Jesus. He can can see that God's hand is, is upon Jesus. Do you see that Jesus doesn't indicate that there are other ways to be saved? Jesus is categorical about this fact. Unless someone is born again, they won't even see the kingdom of God, nor will they enter it. So Jesus stresses the importance of a person being born again. And he says that that is something that the Holy Spirit does. It's a mysterious thing, being born again. He says it's it's like the wind. You, You can see... You can't see the wind itself, but you can see the effects of the wind. And Jesus says, so it is with all those who've been born of the Spirit. You can't see the, the work of, you can't see the Spirit, but you can see the result of what the Spirit has been doing. Again, looking at the Greek is helpful here. And in the Greek language... The word for spirit and the word for wind is exactly the same word. It's the word pneuma. It's where we get our pneumatic drill 
from. In other words, a pneumatic drill is a, a drill that is empowered by, by air, pressure. And so the Greek word for air and the Greek word for a person's spirit is the word pneuma. It's exactly the same in the Hebrew language. There it's the word ruach. Again, it's the word for the wind outside, but it's also the word for the human spirit and for God's spirit. So Jesus says, uh, we see the wind blowing outside, we see the pneuma blowing outside, and uh, also it is the pneuma, the, the wind of God, the spirit of God, that causes the human spirit, pneuma, to come alive. Nicodemus was a, a great Pharisee, and obviously the Jews at this time were eagerly awaiting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was their way of speaking about the world that God was going to bring about. It was God's kingdom, and all the prophets longed for the kingdom of God to come. And in fact, the whole of the New Testament, all of the Gospels, the theme of the Gospels is the kingdom of God. And most of Jesus' parables are about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? People understood the kingdom of God in different ways, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and, and others had different understandings of God's kingdom. For many of them, it was a political concept. Uh, the Romans would be overthrown, and once again, there would be a godly king ruling over Israel, like in the time of David. Uh, the Davidic kingdom would be reestablished, and they saw that as, as what God's kingdom would be, uh, the overthrow of the Romans and the Jewish people ruling themselves and living under God's law. But Jesus had an, uh, a different definition of the kingdom of God to that. Really, the kingdom of God means the zone or sphere where God is honored as king. In other words, wherever God's will is done, wherever God can be seen to be ruling, that is the kingdom of God. And we'll talk more about the kingdom of God later on. Let's just talk a little bit about what it means to be born again. Because Jesus in this passage, the, the first thing he says to Nicodemus when Nicodemus shows up is this. He says, you must be born again. Truly, I tell you, you must be born again. And then again, Jesus repeats it and says, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. You won't enter into the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be born again? It is a spiritual event. It is when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and into our lives and makes us spiritually alive. Because of our sin that we looked at in detail last week, we're born as sinners. We come into this world with a sinful nature. We're spiritually dead. We're not alive to God. We're not living in communion with God. We're spiritually dead. And the event of being born again is when we 
come alive spiritually. And that is a work of the Spirit. And without that work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, we will never have a relationship with God. We will never be able to experience the kingdom of God or live under God's rule. And being born again is something that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. I want to just pick up quickly uh, from James chapter 2. James says this, and he talks about, again, the nature of, of faith. What is true faith? Because there are many people that say they, they have faith. So, so James is, is defining for us what true faith is. And in James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it if a person claims to have faith, but they have no deeds? Can such a faith save them? And the answer is, no, that kind of faith can't save you. Just saying that you have faith, but it doesn't result in a different way of living, that kind of faith can't save you. Then he gives an example to illustrate how useless dead faith is. He says, suppose a person comes to your door and they need clothing, and you say to them, you don't give them anything. You just say, go well, be fed, be happy, be warm. James says, well, what good is that? You, you've just said something, but it, it doesn't change that individual's life. And in verse 17 of James chapter 2, he says, in the same way as not helping that person at your door, in the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James goes on, verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds, faith that doesn't lead to action, is useless? Do you want some evidence for that? Now he moves to the story of Abraham. Verse 21, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Martin Luther said the memorable phrase, Man is saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And what he meant by that is that if you have true faith, it will result in actions, in deeds, in, a, in our lives. And that's how we know whether our faith is real, because we act on it.
I want to come now to the backdrop to Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Because, because John chapter 3 doesn't just happen as a vacuum. In fact, none of the New Testament happens in a vacuum. The backdrop to the whole of the New Testament is the Old Testament. And it's essential to understand the Old Testament to know what's going on in the New Testament. Because so much of the New Testament points back to the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 21, we read this. Numbers 21 is the backdrop to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And the context is of the Israelites in the wilderness. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Reed Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. So they're complaining about their lot in life. They're not appreciating what God has done for them. Verse 6 is frightening. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed, for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at it, he lived. Well, this is a very Interesting story, is it not? And it must have been frightening to have experienced this. I personally am very scared of snakes. The people of Israel are are in the wilderness. They're complaining. And so God actually judges his people. We often think that God doesn't judge his people. But the evidence of scripture is very clear that God, God does indeed judge his people. And he's judging them. Because they're not grateful for what they have and they're not appreciating what God has done for them. Bringing them out of slavery and the promise of bringing them in to the promised land. So God expresses his anger. And many people are bitten by these venomous snakes and many people even die. And so they come to Moses and they're angry and they say, Moses, pray and ask God to take away these terrible snakes that are making us fearful and that are killing us. And Moses' reply is very interesting and it's what God tells Moses to say. Moses looks for the solution that similar to the one we'd look for. Lord, just take away these snakes, take away the problem. But God says, I'm not going to do that. 
But Moses, make a snake, put it up on a stake and put it on a hill. And then if anyone is bitten by a poisonous snake, if anyone does come under my judgment, they can then look at that snake and have some faith in their hearts towards God. And as they look at the snake up on that hill, the, the poison will not affect them and they will recover. So this is the story, and, and that's indeed what happened. God didn't take the snakes away, but he did provide a way of salvation in that situation. And this is the context to John chapter 3. Let me just take you back to John chapter 3, where Jesus begins that conversation. So if you look at verse 14 of John chapter 3, we read these words. And this is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so the, the picture of Jesus upon the cross being crucified for our salvation so that we don't have to experience the judgment of God that the whole world is currently under, that, that correlates to the snake on the stake. And just as those who had faith in the wilderness as they came under God's judgment, they could look at the snake on the stake and be healed. So we who are similarly under God's judgment today because of our sinfulness, we can look to Jesus Christ on the cross and we can be saved. So that's really the backdrop to the famous verse, John 3.16. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Today we are focusing on what it means to be born again. And there's some hints in the Old Testament about being born again, what it, what it would look like. And they're, they're wonderful verses, and I want to share them with you. The first the first great example of being born again, or the theology of being born again, is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. And in Ezekiel 36, the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that a fantastic scripture? A prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about God 
changing our hearts, putting a new spirit in us and internally motivating us to do his will. It's a great scripture. Another wonderful scripture is is Jeremiah 31. And from about 31 of Jeremiah 31, God talks about how I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of, of Israel and with the house of Judah. In other words, God hasn't forsaken the Jewish people. Rather, he's upgrading his covenant with them. It's not, well, God's done with the Jews and now he's going to have a new covenant with the Gentiles. No, the the, the teaching of Jeremiah is that God's going to make a new covenant. He's going to establish a new way of relating to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says in verse 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. It's not going to be like that covenant. Verse 33, this is the covenant I'm going to make. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man need to teach his neighbor and say, know the Lord because they will all know me. So here again is a, a picture, a, a description of what it is to be born again, but, but found in the Old Testament. When one is born again, God puts his laws into our minds. He, he writes them on our hearts. We become changed and we don't need people to, to tell us how to live, but Because we're now spiritually alive and because the Spirit is active within us, we we know God and we know how God wants us to live. And this is what it means to be born again. God changes our hearts from the inside. We become spiritually alive and sensitive to God. And we find that we have new desires and new values, which leads as well to to changed behavior. Being born again is a life-changing experience. It's when God takes out that heart of stone, that selfish, self-centered heart within us all, and He takes that heart out and He gives us a new heart, a heart that is sensitive to Him and sensitive to what God is doing in the world. So there are descriptions of the born-again experience in the Old Testament. There are also descriptions of the born-again experience in the New Testament. I think of uh, Romans chapter 8. There Paul writes in verse 15 about people who have become Christians. He says, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, the spirit within us, we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When one is born again, God puts his spirit into us. And his spirit makes our human spirit come alive. And enables our human spirit to be able to cry out to God and and call him Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, we're also told that our bodies become the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You're not your own, therefore honor God with your body. You've been bought at a price. And in the Old Testament times, the, the holy place, the sanctuary was where God's spirit dwelt. And we know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70. But, but here in Corinthians, Paul says that our bodies, our physical bodies are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Not an earthly temple in Jerusalem, not in the sanctuary, but in, the, but in, our, in our physical bodies. We, in the New Testament, we are the, the, the temple of God. Ephesians 1 is, a, is another great verse that talks about how We've received the Spirit. But let me sum up at this point how one is born again. How does this experience happen to us? Well, the first thing is that we have to believe the gospel. If we truly believe the gospel, it just happens automatically. When we believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us spiritually alive but it's not that head faith it's a head faith and a heart faith it's not faith without works it's not faith that isn't followed up by action it's the kind of faith that is followed up by action that's the kind of faith that that results in a person being born again, that results in a person becoming spiritually alive. And then I believe the Spirit enters us and we can be filled with the Spirit. And that's something we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. What it means to be filled with the Spirit, not just have the Spirit within us, but to allow Him to fill our lives and to control our lives and to influence our, our thinking and, and everything about us. I want to speak now about the evidence that someone has been born again. Being born again is, is something that you can't see. It's not like you see a, a switch being flipped in a person's life that you should be able to see that something has happened. Here are a couple of scriptures that talk about how we need to check whether in fact we have been born again, whether we're just religious, whether we're just going to church because we like meeting people, or we like what happens there. We need to examine ourselves, the Bible says, to see if, we truly have been born again. And I think of 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, which says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? 
So, so we are encouraged in the Bible to, to examine ourselves to see whether we really are in the faith. As I, as I wrap up this, this week's session of Rooted, we're going to look at John's letter, his first letter. It's found near the end of the Bible, uh, 1 John. And in chapter 3 there, there's a passage that I think gives us a number of very good reasons to, to see whether a person, most notably ourself, has really been born again. In 1 John 3, we, we read about the evidence that a person has been born again. And it's spelt out in black and white. So that's why we're, we're going to land in, in this passage today. So let's read 1 John 3. And as we go through, I'll just identify... The, the pieces of evidence that show that a person is indeed born again. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're going to come back to verse 3. It's important. Everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is lawlessness. Let's move on. Verse 6. Here's another important point. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or has known him. Dear children, don't let anybody lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, Jesus and God. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. Because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Well, these are, these are very tough words and they spell out for us very clearly who it is that is born again and who isn't. It, it spells out for us what the lifestyles are like of the children of God and the children of the devil. The next chapter goes on. 
So now we're in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Let's love one another, John says. Here's another point. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then there's a wonderful scripture about how God has shown his love to us. And that is he sent his son into the world. And the the compassion of God is being highlighted and talks about how he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. And this is the kind of love that we should strive to have for one another. Verse 13 gives us another piece of evidence of how you can know you or someone else is a Christian. Verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 16, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And then John goes on to say there's there's no fear in love. Love is made complete among us and we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We've read that earlier. It's now repeated in chapter 4. So let me just wrap this up and summarize the reasons that I've seen in this passage. Here then are, are, I think, nine reasons that, that show us whether a person has experienced being born again or not. Here are nine things touchstones that show whether a person's faith is real. Here's the first one. You have a desire to be pure. We read that in 1 John 3 and verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 9. John says that all those who have this desire in them purify themselves. In other words, A person who's been born again loves that which is pure and holy and righteous. It's a sign that you've been born again. And the fact that you're cleaning up your life and you're trying to live a life that is righteous, that is evidence that you've been born again. People that continue to live in sin, That's evidence that they've not experienced the transformation that being born again brings about. People that live in sin and continue to sin, John says, well, they've not been born again. In fact, he says, a person that has been born again, a person that's become spiritually alive, a person that's got a new heart and that is filled with the Spirit of God, won't want to live a life of sin, and in fact won't, because God's seed is in them. Their old nature is gone. They have a new nature. God's seed is in them. They are spiritually alive. And just as a lemon tree produces lemons and an apple tree apples, so if you're a spiritually alive person, the outcome of your way of life will be righteousness. The second 
reason, piece of evidence, is that if you're a genuine Christian, you will find that you love people. This is a, a, a big transformation that God brings about in our lives, and it's a sign that we've been born again. And again in this passage, John says repeatedly that the person who loves, that's the person who's been born of God. Because we start to reflect what God is like in our lives. In verse 13, we read of a third reason or piece of evidence. We experience the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. John says we know this because of the Spirit. A person who's been born again has a relationship with the Holy Spirit, hears the voice of the Spirit, feels the prompting of the Spirit, is moved by the Spirit to do various things. A person who is truly born again has an experience of the Spirit in their life. Also in verse 18, and I think we're in in John 4 here, you no longer have a fear of death. Or of judgment. People that don't know God, they're, they're scared to die. They're fearful of judgment. But we're told here by John that the person that, that knows God, that's been born again, that is, is being purified by their pursuit of holiness, they don't fear death. They don't fear the judgment of God, because they know they're a child of God. Sure, we can fear the way we might die, and dying can be painful and terrible, but we don't fear the judgment of God. That's a sign that you're you're born again. That, That fear is gone, because perfect love drives out fear. We also hear God's voice once we're born again. And there's a reference to that in John chapter 10. Let me just pick up as as we wrap up in Romans 10. There's there's another description of life in the Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, we read in verse 13, If you live according to your sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So people who've been born again, they put to death the the misdeeds of the body, those sinful desires that we all have. We, we, We put those things to death and we are rather led by the Spirit. Our lifestyle changes. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Paul writes, Don't you know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's what the born-again experience does to us. We're, we're washed, we're sanctified, we're, we're justified, we're made righteous in God's sight. And then, of course, there's that famous scripture in, in Galatians 5 where we're told what the fruit of the Spirit is. And the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is not that you speak in tongues. The evidence of the Spirit at work in your life is the fruit of the Spirit. That you are loving, that you are joyful, that you are peaceful, that you are patient and kind and morally good. That you're faithful, that you're gentle, that you have self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. This is the evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. So friends, I hope this has shed some more light on what it is to be born again. We, we are born again when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and makes us spiritually alive. It is a miracle. It is something that God does in our hearts and in our lives when we believe in Him and when we repent of our sin. When we have that faith that is real faith. That faith that results in action, that is the faith that results in a person being born again, being regenerated. It is something the Holy Spirit does within us, and that changes our lives. And in today's rooted course, I've, I've sought to show what some of those changes are. We start to have a love for righteousness and holiness. We start to have a love for people. We hear God's voice. We no longer fear God's judgment. We no longer fear God in the, the, the scary sense. We, we simply fear Him in the reverential way. So these are just some of the, the indications that the Scripture gives us of what it is to be born again. So I hope you found this helpful and uh, that you will join us again next week.